Vinnie Pascal was born on September 11, 1943, in the Bronx. He is happily married 26 years to Maria Pascal. They have two children, Luke, 27, and Olivia, 22, and from his first marriages, two boys that are now 50 and 40. He's been the chief operating officer for ARC restaurants for 38 years. Before that, he worked in New York City nightlife and clubs throughout the city. Vinny, you're my oldest friend, not just in age, <laughs> but in time that we know each other. So I think we were 16 when we met. I was 16, you were 17. Yeah, exactly. So we were frisky teenagers. You and, can say that again. <laughs> and, um, and the reason I asked you to come, not only because I love you dearly and you're such a special person, but the, the experience we had as teenagers was very specific to a time that was very funny and entertaining. But I think that there's a, a timeless experience that teenagers have and you wonder if they're gonna come out the other end okay. So teenagers get into things and then some come out okay and some go in different paths. We, I will start by saying, survived some really crazy stuff. Neither one of us ever drank or took a drug in our lives, and we probably were surrounded a good part of our time by some really pe way out people. And it, it's fascinating and amazing that we still are good friends and we still haven't taken a drug or a drink no matter what group we're in or what situation we're in. So. The reason I've asked you to come is because I think that that experience we had together was unique and interesting, but it also reflects what all teenagers go through, and that journey really can define the rest of their lives. For sure. So what's your first question? My first question is, I don't remember how we met or who introduced us. And I have two, there were two people that I remember that we were both very friendly with. So I was going to ask, T, do you remember how we met? Um, not really. Not really. I can assume, but I'm not 100% sure. I remember it was 1961. Oh, my God. I remember that you either just graduated from high school and you were about to embark on your FIT experience. And, um, and I know um, you always had a sketch pad in your hand, no matter what age you were. And I know you wanted to be a painter. The question I have as it relates to a 16-year-old kid hanging out in a place called the Wagon Wheel and the Peppermint Lounge right. is how the hell did you get in it? How did you get in? So, um, First of all, to explain, do you want to explain the Peppermint Lounge and the Wagon Wheel, what they were? At the, so I, I think that if the Peppermint Lounge can be best described to this audience as the place where the twist was born. And the twist was a very popular dance, Chubby Checker, 
and um, you know, come on, baby, let's do the Joey twist. D and the Joey song. D and the Starlight. So the twist was the rage, and the Peppermint Lounge was the precursor to Studio Fifty Four. It was the place every socialite, celebrity, anybody who was anybody had to go to. And the wagon wheel was sort of like, I don't know. The place where the people who couldn't get into the Batman <laughs> Lounge would end up. Right, which was sort of like a blues club. Yeah, it was. And very funky, funky. To, and, to say the least. Yeah, so, so the question was, how did I end up there? Well, I had a very isolated childhood. I lived in Yorkville, which was an Irish Catholic neighborhood. We never left the neighborhood. We always stayed together. My venture out was to Washington Irving High School when I finally picked a high school. And at Washington Irving, I met a girl who said, do you want to go to the Peppermint Lounge? And I didn't even know what it was. But her father was somehow involved, let's say, in the background. And we would get in, and we were, I mean, in 19, yeah, I was 16, 1961. And so we would get in, just get in, and we, we danced um, constantly. Eight and hours. Eight, <laughs> we danced straight with water, and that was it. You never stopped. Never stopped. Great dancer, by the way. <laughs> well, I obviously, I, and I would sew my pants on me because I didn't know how to put a zipper in. So <laughs> drinking a lot of water and <laughs> dancing. Oh, sure. <laughs> seam ripper. I had a seam ripper with me, and I would sew myself in and out of the pants every time I went to the bathroom. It was great. I mean, it was unbelievable. I just said to myself... How does a 16-year-old girl get into this place? Not to mention, how does a 17-year-old well, boy get into Well, how did you? I mean, you were from I had New fake Jersey. ID, just like everybody else. I lied. And uh, I remember the owner of the wagon wheel was extremely fond of me. A guy, I can't mention his name, but he was very fond of me. And uh, his wife was even more fond of me. And... Um, they let me in, and I did what you did. I didn't. The only dance I ever did in my life I, was the twist. Yeah, I don't <laughs> remember. Last. Yeah, I don't remember you dancing. Well, I did dance. <laughs> I was I was a hot ticket um, back in the day, uh, but that was when dancing ended for me. Yeah, yeah. But um, I don't. Do you ever hear from uh, this person that you went? No, to? no, nothing. I, nothing. And um, the interesting thing is. Um, that period of time was the first time I met, really met people outside of my neighborhood. And, and it, as, as we can describe, and you can describe better than I, the, the street was 45th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. Right. So it's in the middle of, the oh my God, yeah. right? And it could be the worst of New York. At that time, and but there was this entertainment aspect of what was going on there, and the music and the dancing and the costumes on the dancers at um, at the Peppermint Lounge were so appealing to me that I was mesmerized by it. So, do you think that helped attract you to what you are today? Uh, it, it, you know. 
I think there's an aspect of it that has. So I remember the Peppermint Lounge had um, live band. Mm-hmm. So Joey D and the Starlighters, who later became the Young Rascals, um, did the, you know, had a song, The Twist, and they were the house band, and they were amazing. The Peppermint Twist. Yeah, and they were amazing. And so they they would have a show with amazing dancers, dancers. who yeah. choreographed these fantastic routines and I've always loved dance and I've always been attracted to dancers and routines and I remember vividly they the girls wore these two-piece fringe outfits red and they would shimmy and do the twist in those outfits and to this day there are always fringe pieces <laughs> on my collection. I don't care if it's the trend, the fashion, anything. Those fringe pieces are just I look at I look at fringe and I think have a good time. You are going to have a good time in that outfit. And the dancers were such a big part of the the whole act there, right? You know, it's interesting because there's a show on TV today called The Deuce. I don't know. I, I can't watch it because it's it's just not a show that I can. It, there's some bad stuff in it, but it reminds me. And it was shot at that particular time, mm-hmm. and you could really see what you and I were in, and we didn't the, know. And we didn't know. Yeah. And um, I, I the only thing the only thing I can think of as far as you're concerned is what what was protecting you or what gave you the mm. sensibility to be careful. And I had in my in my thing, in my notes, I had parentheses, mom, because your mother was such a, a <laughs> of powerful force. Of, of force. Force. I mean, she made Star Wars look right. very weak. <laughs> um, and I, I was blessed because she actually liked me. Oh, I she think loved I, you. I think I, was, I think I was one of the few people yeah. that she really did like. But you actually, like, I would have to, during, during the summer and weekends, I could stay out till midnight. But obviously during school nights, I, I wouldn't go. Right, right. But I remember you many times making sure I left 45th Street before midnight. It was like, that was my go job. home, <laughs> go home. And then I would often think like, well, what's Vinny going to do now? Like, is he going to be okay? But I was never afraid. Were you ever afraid? Never. We were too stupid to too be stupid afraid. Too stupid to be afraid. Had no idea. And I, you know, and I, and I, we were surrounded by nice people. Well, some. but describe what we were surrounded by. Um, I wrote a little list. <laughs> <laughs> um, prostitutes, drug addicts, drug dealers, murderers, thieves, male hustlers, female hustlers. Um, and I think that probably covers the game. And, stu- and stuff... That you can't even imagine because it was so dark. It was so there dark. There was dark, dark darkness. There was a, a feeling that I had, anyway, that, that the people that we knew had this sort of leave these two alone. I mean, they I mean, did. Yeah, they did. Because they're good kids. We don't want them to be like they we did. are. They did. They did. And, you know, it, it, it was very helpful. <laughs> I mean, the question I had when you snuck into your house at 12, 30, 1 o'clock, was mom sitting on the chair waiting you in the kitchen? So my mother, as you described, was a force. She was 
just an incredible power. And I wasn't afraid of her as much as I was. I didn't want to disappoint her. And because she would make you feel so bad. And um, she had the gift. (laughs) She was just unbelievable. And I think because she liked you so much, she felt that you were a decent guy and that you, you know, you were probably the kind of people I was hanging around with. Little did she know. (laughs) And so I, I remember. I remember sketching you, so I I was desperate to sketch human beings because I was studying anatomy and I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be Michelangelina, and I I was just I need human beings. I need to to, to sketch human beings. So I remember begging you, please, Vinny, let me sketch you. Let me sketch you. So we were in my bedroom in the four by four apartment, and my bedroom was one by one. And I remember you <laughs> sitting on a stool one day, and I'm sketching day. you, and you you were sweating, and I I kept saying, "Are you okay, Vinny? Are you okay?" And then you just fainted. Oh, yeah. You just fainted and fell I'm over. <laughs> Quick, <laughs> mom! Like uh, so, I my mother just was so aware of your kindness and just what a, a great guy you were that. I don't think she, and she knew I would see you, so I don't think she understood the depth of what was going on. And then the Metropole Cafe, which was there for a long time, I don't know if it's still there, on Broadway or 7th, was was this sleazy place, but the guys from the, you know, the... the, um, not the Rascals, but... The drummer, Dino. Dino um, would go there, and Gene Krupa would give him lessons. Yeah, I remember. So Kathy and I would go. um, I think she and Dino were seen. I don't know what the story was, but I knew there was a reason we were going there. And I remember sitting there thinking, and there were some women who were very extrovert in their behavior were there. And I remember thinking all of this is so different and new. I didn't know how to put it in perspective with my childhood and the way I was brought up. So I kind of just didn't judge it. But I knew that um, seeing Gene Krupa and understanding, because my brother was practicing drums right, and everything, that this was really something special that was happening but I also was aware that there was darkness and strange stuff going on and it was it was it was definitely edgy definitely edgy there was one fairly famous person who came out of Hollywood who I think got their start dancing at at the Metro um am I allowed to say who it is yeah Goldie Hawn danced really the Metropole well I mean you know I can see that, but I also see that she's a survivor. And she was probably like us, like, oh, this is fun and this is a great opportunity, but not really until later understanding the the depth of the, you know, the darkness there. You know, putting it, uh, you and I having a very casual conversation Mm -hmm. about those times, 
can't give anyone any idea, unless they were there as well, mm -hmm. just what it was like. It was, um, and I don't want to paint a, a too dark a picture either, because mm. it was wonderful. Yeah. It was great. And I think that you and I, um, especially you, in terms of your ability to survive the world you're in now, um, was probably helped survival by those skills. Yeah. yeah. Well, we should talk about some of the people that went to the Peppermint Lounge that were famous. I mean, the Kennedys. The, they all uh, the, went there. I every celeb, every socialite and celebrity of the time, time. just Absolutely. the same kind of people that went to Studio Fifty Four went there. Remember when the Beatles? Yeah, I came played. To Studio I played 4? Monopoly with Ringo Starr. Yeah, and so they they were at at, at uh, the Peppermint Lounge because it was the place to see and to and the dance the girl dancers were dating the you know the whoever yeah, and it, whoever. it was uh, um, just it was really energetic and positive in so many ways because there was this creativity and excitement for the time but it it definitely I mean if people were talking about mafia or any of that that culture was pervasive in that time yeah, sure. and the personality of it which was also very sexy and appealing um the charm of guys that had that swagger was really like it was very evident you saw it everywhere but they they were always on the edge of being arrested or getting <laughs> shot or, you, or what, being ha dead. what happened to your leg? Oh, I got stabbed by a knife. And I'm like, oh my god. I remember oh. John Lennon was at the headliner, which was there were right. three places: the Wagon Wheel, the Pep, and the headliner. And the headliner, Forty Third Street, right, right by the New York Times in the New York Times exactly. building. He came. He came in, and it was a controlled restaurant, a uh, controlled club, and um, there were some wise guys that were in the place. And John Lennon made a comment about one of the wise guys' wives or girlfriends, and they were going to kill him. No, I, I, I have no doubt. I remember going to the headliner because they had have great bands, and if the show was on, so. Kathy and I were the in-between dancers. They had dancers that danced right. in between the oh, God, shows. So that. we took pride in being the in-between dancers. And I have to describe my getup. My hair took me at least an hour and a half to do hair and makeup. And my hair was, what, maybe a foot tall? Yeah, I would tease it. The two of us would tease and tease our hair into curls. And, <laughs> and we would check the back of each of our heads to make sure there were no holes or openings. And so I had the hair going, lashes, my skin-tight pants. And when we were, when the in-between dancers weren't, there was a show on, we had some time, we would go to the headliner to see the bands there. And I remember the first time I saw an all-girl band, and they may be one of the few all-girl yeah. bands at the time. I didn't know of any others, and it was Goldie and the Gingerbreads. Goldie Zelkowitz. And they were so great. They were very hot and sexy and very, very... They were good, too. And they really were... Talk about competing in a man's world. Yeah, right. They really, really had... Um, you know, they were, they were, it's, it's Mad Men time, 1961. 61. So, you know, women are not getting respect. 
and here are these babes banging at the drums, playing sax, doing all of this. And it was really so exciting to see. Um, and I was also playing saxophone at the time <laughs> at school, and I was taking private lessons. I played saxophone and clarinet, and I remember they... Um, the sax player was sick or something, and they had a performance, and Kathy tells them, well, Norma plays the saxophone. <laughs> and there was that moment in time where they looked at me like, do you want to? And I intuitively knew, no. That's mom. No, you don't want to do that. And my life could have taken such a turn, um, but I, I just like, oh, oh, no, I don't think so. I'm not, not going to do that. I still remember their theme song, Goldie and the Gingerbreads. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I wonder if any of them are around. I think that they have such a great story. They were really... Um, I think she was from Queens. They were, they were so fantastic, and they were such leaders. And we talk about feminists, and we talk about women who do breakthroughs, but this, this is a group of women who were On the road. so brave yeah. to, to, make, to say, we're going to do this. And they probably never got credit their entire lives because it was during Good a period point. where you didn't recognize that. You, they were tolerated, yeah. but they weren't respected. And, and so Kathy and I just were their big fans, and we would just you know scream and yell and make sure the that... The drummer liked me. I, the Bonnie, drummer, I think her name was Bonnie Yeah, the Bonnie. drummer was gorgeous. Yeah, she was a pretty girl. I always remember her wearing low-cut yeah, tops, yeah. but everybody wore low-cut low top. tops. Yeah, really. And what was the other band, um, the other girl group? Um, oh, Ronnie, the Ronettes. The Ronettes. They yeah. were always there. They yeah. were always right, at the Peppermint Lounge. They were so great. Yeah. So the Ronettes started there, and they were, they were really terrific. Well, I remember Frank Vincent, who is a, um, you see him in every wise guy movie. He was in Goodfellas. He, mm -hmm. was, he gets killed, I think, in every movie. Right, right. A, uh, he was in a band. Um, Bobby J, I think the name mm -hmm. of the guy was. He was and Bobby J was in a, in a wheelchair. He was handicapped. And uh, I remember Frank Vincent was part of his group. But that was a wagon wheel band. They mm -hmm. didn't work the pedal. No. I love the wagon wheel music. I think that's yeah. why I love blues so much. That raunchy, yeah. Yeah. low oh, down, cool. you know, really, really. And Ray Charles was such yeah. a, a... And he was there. He was he, there. Yeah, he was I mean, there. I my go-to songs at karaoke, Ray Charles, Etta James. Of course, I can never do Etta James, but I love Ray Charles. I remember the sawdust on the floor. I remember just the, the heat of that place was just so intense. That was my first um, restaurant club job. I was the oh, hat check boy there. Are you serious? Why don't I remember that? Yeah, I used to I check coats for a woman who was a waitress, Irene Shabrosky, who oh. was about 6'9", and she had her eyes on me, and she put me in the coat room because she felt that I'm the only person she could trust. trust. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, you, the other thing I remember was um, at the time, I don't know if, if you went to these, but there were the... Um, the, all the rock and roll shows, right? The, like at the Brooklyn Fox yeah, sure, and everywhere. Sure. And so we 
because we were in between dancers, we were invited to go and go to the Brooklyn Fox things and dance. Right. And so Kathy and I were like, we're on it. We're, we're there. And I remember standing backstage and standing next to Smokey Robinson and all of these people and thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. How did I get here? Yeah. What is this? So it, it was just seeing those rock and roll shows up close and all of those performers and thinking, this is truly magic. This is how did I end up in this place, And that's right? what I mean, to, to have experienced right. that and come out okay. On the other is end. It's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. We are special, Norma. Yeah. You are not. I, I, I think about every time we see each other, we, we laugh at how close we came oh. so many times. It was really, really um, something. How many of them are dead? Well, I mean, it, it was a tough time, and it Very was a survival for a lot of people. And, and you, were in, you were a New Jersey boy, right? And right. I was literally in this Catholic school, um, closed neighborhood that didn't really, you know, we, we just knew each other, other people. It was a time when oh, you stayed in your neighborhood. You never you, left your neighborhood. You didn't venture out, And to, sure. out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I'm in this world that is so abstract um, that I couldn't explain to anything, anybody. And actually, Kathy and I sort of dressed for each time like this was our, this was our show and we we did head to toe well you saw them all <laughs> i remember putting layers of pancake makeup, makeup. on <laughs> oh, yeah. and how much makeup did i wear it was like i don't know what the heck i had plaster of paris <laughs> on my face and my hair was so sprayed that it could just stay under any conditions. It could rain, it could snow, I could sweat. That hair was not going to get touched. It was great. It, it was, was lacquered. It was unbelievable. I mean, um, and we de- we dolled up. I mean, we really. Yeah, I we, remember, uh, Kathy was gorgeous. Yeah, yes. She was yes, a little tiny, tiny, but she was gorgeous. But that, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember Connie, too, but I don't know. Uh-huh. She wasn't quite as much as uh, you and Kathy were. No, so Connie. She was like a bodyguard. Yeah. Connie, <laughs> we met at Washington Irving. And Connie, um, so. We were in the art class, and if you were in the art class, Washington Irving was all girls, and Washington Irving was tough then, as it is now, but it was tough. And so if you had a portfolio, it was like saying, come beat me up. (laughs) Now, even though I was from this neighborhood, I was very athletic, and I was physical. I, I had a lot of strength. So I wasn't really afraid of anybody, but I just didn't get the deal that I should get beaten up every time I left school. And I remember one day somebody was coming up to me to kind of challenge me because I had my big portfolio. And this girl comes out of nowhere and it's Connie. And she's from Little Italy, and oh, you're not going to mess with Connie. And so she stops the girl and the girls and says, where are you going? What are you going to do? You got a problem? You got a problem with me? And she's doing this whole thing. And I'm looking at her like, where did my guardian angel come from? 
And she became really good friends with us. And she ended up being my bookkeeper when I opened my company. That's right. So I forgot all about that. Yes. Oh my God. And she was outrageous. She she went to places, and the stories she would tell me and the things she would do were so off the charts that I didn't even want to repeat them to myself (laughs) (laughs) because they were so there's a great Seinfeld episode. I'm allowed to talk about Seinfeld. There's yep. a Seinfeld episode where uh, George is trying to collect unemployment. And the woman who can make the decision on his unemployment, he's sitting across from her. <laughs> he sees the picture of, his, of her daughter on the table. I hope you watched Seinfeld. Because I did, but I'm not, I uh, don't know this So he, sees, he, he says, is that your daughter? And she says, yeah, you're interested? And he says, I, I, I'd love to meet her. So they get fixed up. That daughter was Connie. (laughs) Every time I see that episode, I think of her. And there's a scene Mm. where they're in the car. She's inviting him up. He won't go up because she's really not somebody you want to go up. And he says, I have an interview in a hardware store tomorrow for a job. He says, what are you going to do? Are you going to give me screws? So she breaks up with George Costanza. And, of course, he doesn't go on to Mm -hmm. collect his unemployment. That but, is Connie. Yep. Look Connie, for that yeah. episode. Connie had a heart of gold, oh, yeah. and she it's was wonderful. just such a kind, Good generous, friend. funny, funny, funny person. And um, and my mother loved her. Connie would come like at three in the morning, all whatever, and she would <laughs> knock at what? the door, and my mother would like come in, come in, and I thought, what what is in my What's, mother's head? Yeah that Connie can do no wrong and everything is right. I didn't understand, but Connie could come anytime to my mother's house and be totally welcome. And and Connie was such a great help when we opened yeah. the business because she really was the sort of the kept kept check on the money and that how was it was being spent. Street, right? On 53rd Street, yeah. So I was really, I, I, she was just sort of this gift, this angel that came yeah. into my life. And, yeah, I wonder about Connie yeah. and uh, Kathy. I wonder how they do, well, if they're doing Well, Connie work. passed. Oh, she did? Yeah. Oh. And um, so I, I just think there are people that are supposed to be in your life yeah. and you connect with them at a certain time. And there's such value to that. And with us, when I think about how important you are to me, part of it is you really are my living history. Like, I have these memories, but without you, they're memories that could be, that could sort of disappear, but you validate them the way I validate your experience and your existence, right? So it's a really special thing that you have with a friend, especially a friend for such a long time, and the value of long-time friendships. Yeah, we've been, you know, even with Billy, you know, he was Mm -hmm. such a great kid, and uh, I remember what a little wise guy he was (laughs) and how I wanted to just take him. Right. (laughs) You know, he's missed, too. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. That was it. My but, brother was very funny. Okay. Um, he, he had a At really... nine, he was Yeah, funny. he was, had an extremely um, smart sense of humor. 
And um, I remember he wrote um, a poem, and he it was his first crush, and he wrote a poem about this crush, and it was about smoking a cigarette. He didn't even smoke. <laughs> he was like, smoking a cigarette, my heart is broken. And, <laughs> and we saw the poem, and Connie and I read it, and we, were, we started laughing, and then he heard us. And so she quickly knew to kind of, intuitively, she was so kind, to kind of connect yeah. with him. And he loved her so much, too. And so she helped him through that first crush. She, but the poem was so, so deep and so, you know, touching. I was thinking about my first crush and how you helped me through my first crush when I got dumped. And uh, but that, that's that's for you had one. so many crushes. You, 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 yeah, but the one that was the major crush, the major, major crush. Um, and I so milked it, you know, the OCD of crushes <laughs> I had, it was so nuts. And um, and you were there for me. I remember Kennedy assassination, you right, and I, right. I was at your house, yes, that's the night right. Got, the, night, the day he got shot. Yeah. I yeah. came to your house yeah. and how dark the city yeah. was. Yeah, it was very sad. And I remember my brother was delivering meat for the butcher on a bicycle. And um, wow. somebody just heard the news in their car and the radio, and they crashed into my brother, which then he in turn got this incredible amount of insurance money. So it was the first cash in my brother had of course it was against this horrible news but but that was such a traumatic yeah. event because up until then there was a naivete about life it was still a hangover from this from the 50s and yeah. 60s it was pre that opened the door yeah it was it was before 65 so it was what what year did he die 63 I 63. It was 63 so it was so everything was so almost naive about everything, everything but the but the hope that he gave people was just everything and it was worldwide and it was so heavy and dramatic and it it went to everybody's heart so still today if you travel you still see pictures pictures of kennedy and the effect he had on people and it was martin luther king yeah Bobby john kennedy, kennedy and gandhi so yeah. i remember that trio as a part of the news of my childhood Think about it. It was very inspiring. There were very powerful personalities who had new concepts and new thoughts and new behavioral ideas. And they had Jackie Kennedy. Yep. I mean, Martin Luther King, that, that speech before he died, mm -hmm. um, I may not get there with you too. Yeah, I know. I'm going. Oh my God! That that oh, just seeing them, just hearing them, and seeing yeah. them. I remember, I was <clears throat> at um, Washington Irving, and um, I was the Union Square Park, um, and I was I I was either going home or I don't know why I was out. Uh, from school, and I there was this stage in the park, and there weren't a lot of people around, and there were microphones and bullhorns being set up, and um, 
all of a sudden I see this man and people started to gather and I see this man and I'm looking at him and I never saw anybody like that. I, my neighborhood, people didn't wear suits it was, unless it was a wedding or a funeral. <laughs> and here he was in the most beautiful suit and he was so handsome and he had this hair that was just wow and he started speaking and I remember going right up front I wanted to like I remember looking up at him looking at his shoes looking at the pant everything and thinking who is this man what is what's going on here and hearing this accent that I'd never heard because New, New York England. New York yeah. accents yeah. were that's what I know. <laughs> and hearing the sound of his voice and then what he was saying and thinking, Oh my God, this man is just unbelievable and it was Kennedy. Yeah. There he was. And I I remember telling Caroline when I met her years later that it that was such a bold moment for me in understanding the power of the, the charisma sub, the man, yeah, yeah that power yeah, for sure. and how he could change a belief system in a positive way it was no negativity there was a just a a, a feeling of euphoria and there was a calmness about his yeah. delivery he was he was he was but, magic but then again even with Martin Luther King he was messaging profound stuff, but it wasn't provocative in in a bad way. Yeah. It was uplifting, positive. Gandhi, again, powerful, uplifting. We were so fortunate to oh, have God. that as the early impressions of what could be. And I crave that now for the generations that are the age I was when I first saw that. I'm nervous for those generations. Well, I'm not, I'm not nervous for them. I think that there's a lot of really positive stuff that can be. But I think we are waiting for the next coming, and the next coming has to be a high-level of integrity and of messaging that is positive and brings people together. Yeah. All three of those people had a purpose, and that was to bring people together. All three of those people were key, and because they were so radical, their lives were, were shortened by, by yeah. people who were afraid of that kind Message, of energy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's the that's the sad thing. Yeah. That people who have a positive uplifting message are really the most intimidating. Maybe, yeah. Well, here you can go back 2000 years to when mm -hmm. that was going yeah. on. Yeah. So it's it shows you that but we are long overdue for the next wave of that and and we are so lucky. You know, you and I are so lucky for so many things. So let's talk about drugs and alcohol, and like okay. <laughs> and, and and how peculiar it was, and and just starting with Forty Fifth Street and everybody. And I didn't know about drugs really. I I I wasn't really sure, 
I uh, later on I thought, oh, so maybe it was marijuana that they were, but it, like this, there was heroin, there was like everything, and I had no idea what that culture that area, was. That area at that time was controlled by one particular crime family, and uh, and it was a very powerful crime family, and uh, he had that control for for many many years. And um, he was not a drug-organized um, crime figure because a lot of the old-timers, they didn't want to know about that because of what that was going to bring. And it was sort of like the younger generations that kind of brought that in because it was easy money. But um, all those young men and women that used to hang out in that little diner. I don't know if you remember. Right, I do. What was the name of it? The Knickerbocker. Oh, my God. That's right. It was the Knickerbocker Hotel. Hotel. Exactly. Is that still there, I wonder? No, no, that's gone. I don't know what's there now, but (laughs) that's gone. But all of those guys were um, lost to to drugs. And we lost one guy that we were both very Mm -hmm. fond of. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it was very, very sad when that happened because this, this guy had a magic about him, too. He had that wonderful mm-hmm. smile. Yeah. I'll never forget it. So, uh, and alcohol, you know, alcohol was so-so, but, I, uh, but it, it was a lot of drugs. But, you know, who knew? Yeah. You know, sure, take two of these pills, take this one. But it was so, it wasn't, it wasn't a mainstream conversation. No, I mean, even didn't. to talk about pot or marijuana, I remember there were those films that... Well, what that, was that one? Oh, um... <laughs> I can tell you who was in it. The guy's name was O'Brien. His last name was O'Brien. Some there were. It was like nobody talked about it. Yeah. It was this underground thing, and there was a film about it that people talked about, but nothing. I mean, and even though Forty Second Street was so near, and all of those those poop peep shows and yeah. stuff like that were around, I still wasn't aware of porn. I didn't have a clue about what that was. I mean, naive was not a mild word for no you were you were worse than me i I really i really knew nothing well i remember manny manny gonzalez Mm -hmm. and he had porno films the black and white with the socks on (laughs) (laughs) and we used to watch those things with popcorn i mean it was oh my god i i i don't think i knew about porn until the 70s i had no idea what what look at it now but but the uh, but the innocence of the time yeah. was very special. But it also, um, you know, it it also created this this sort of disguised sense of what was really going on and the levels that like the nightlife. What happens at night? I was very aware of the fact that there were day people and there were night people. And the people we saw were night, night people. people. And they were never, they were like in their caves during the day. And they, daylight never hit them. Never saw it. Never saw it. They only came out at night and they existed at night. And I, I found that fascinating that you can actually live a life that way. You know what I remember, Norma? I remember uh, Lenny. Remember Lenny? Right. And he lived on West 88th Street. Mm-hmm. And I was living there with mm-hmm. him at the time. And Lenny was one of the dancers he at, was the, a Peppermint dancer Lounge. at the Peppermint Lounge. Yeah. And, and then he, he was used to great. design the costumes. Yes, yes. And um, I remember this in, in terms of the AIDS epidemic and mm-hmm. what happened with that. 
um, how Central Park West was like a center for men meeting men mm-hmm. and how that got completely wiped out, mm-hmm. you know, because of how many people yeah people got lost to that well the same with the west village i was living in the west village in the 80s and not only did i lose some very close friends but the west village was just street by street you just saw people who were very sick and not having any hope for life they, they don't care. At you, no, there were no cures, no nothing, and the numbers of people just walking down the street, and and it was something, it was a plague, oh, and for sure. and in the West Village, that was the center of a gay community. Uh, that was where I was living, and I and I was overwhelmed. Well, Sometimes yeah. I was just so overwhelmed. I I would cry and I and and to know you have friends who tell you that they have AIDS and they oh, basically God. telling you I'm not going to see you anymore was just so abstract. Yeah, that was terrible. And and then there were people in the country who heard about it but didn't really experience it because anybody who was gay left their town or or were, were going to be open about what was happening to them would leave that town and come to New York. Do you remember at Lenny's house, we used to do parties there. Mm-hmm. He had a costume party one time. And there was a young dancer, uh, Roger. I don't know if you remember I remember Roger. Roger. Okay. Roger was my first transvestite friend. Mm-hmm. And I remember the costume he came to the party in. Now, this is... 1962? Mm-hmm. Brave, 1962. Brave. He came as the Academy Award. He was naked. I, and I, he painted. You he know was what? Why gold. do I, I think I you remember that? You were probably that. Yes, that I remember that. He was so brave. He was really brave. And I think dancers, he, I th- he was a dancer yeah, too. Yeah. And I think dancers felt a camaraderie and a safe place together. Um, so that's probably why he was braver in that oh, setting. But um, but it, but even but if we go back to the '60s, nobody was gay. Nobody, right? Nobody, nobody was gay. There was a, supposedly there was a period of time, and I I tell people this when I was in high school, even graduating high school, I would say till 1970 probably or maybe a little earlier where I didn't know what gay was my mother on the other hand had gay friends really she had gay friends and I and and it be, they became more open as, as time, we got yeah. into the yeah. 70s yeah. but at the time I remember her friends, these guys that were so much fun and so great, and they loved my mother, of course. Um, and she she was so ahead of her time in so many ways. Right. But these were her good friends. Even in the neighborhood, guys who were trying to keep it secret that they were, like she, she was like that, they connected immediately, but Growing up, 
we had no idea no. that there was any, what is gay? What does that mean? My example of that is there were two guys that I met on West 45th Street. They were both in Bye Bye Birdie, oh. in the show Bye Bye Birdie, and on Broadway. And um, they were very friendly with Irene, who owned the Hatcher mm-hmm. Concession. And they took me to a gay bar. This 64. Oh, you're kidding. And it was on East 53rd Street. And I'll never oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I went in, and this was the first encounter I ever had mm-hmm. with gay people. And there were two men kissing. <laughs> I still have visions of that mm-hmm. in my mind. I, still, I can still see that. But that was my first uh, encounter and, and with that community. It, and it was so brave, seriously, oh, God. Uh, yeah. for anybody to, I mean, think about it then and how hard it's been for people up till 10 years yeah. ago, five years ago. Three but years can ago. you imagine, can you imagine what it, and I keep relating it back to madman time because it was such a rigid time. It was so hard for women. And anything women have gone through with objectification, you know gay men shared that. Oh, yeah. So, maybe, yeah, so, maybe it, so gay, like totally the objectification, exactly the same, yeah. the same intensity. And so that was such a difficult time because the gender thing was so specific. The power of of that position of being male and anything that wasn't that was less than. And so for a, a, a gay man to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out, I'm, I'm going to leave my hometown, come to New York and be me, or for a woman to decide that she was going to be her own person. So in the 70s, it was still so early in that, and that's when that started to happen in the in the early 70s, which is then my story of, like, I'm going to do this on my own. In the 70s, how do you even think of think a concept? It, yeah. But the pain has to be so intense that you have to leave that hometown, you have to leave that marriage, you have to leave that environment and do it because if the pain wasn't that difficult, you would suffer with that secret or with that existence, and your self-esteem with, yeah. is just shot. There's the there's a song Rod Stewart sent, made called "The Killing of Georgie Boy." I don't remember oh, that. Oh yeah, and it's all about a, a young man who um, was gay, left home, um, and was involved in the Broadway scene. I think he was an actor, dancer, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, attacked on East 53rd Street and 2nd Avenue. This song is about yeah, that? Yeah. It, look for it if you oh can. My God. You'll, you'll recognize oh my God. it the minute, you, the minute you hear it. And, um, and that was the beginning. Not that it ended, but that was the beginning of the end. That's when there was a fed up yeah. you know, in that community. They were fed, fed up, up because yeah. it became such a story. Yeah. So when we were talking about the movie Green Book, uh, oh, I didn't the, see it, but yeah, no, well, no yeah. you saw it with the with the. No, the, I didn't see it. It's it's on. He, he he was a musician. He's driving in the car. Yeah, and, and but he talked about the wagon going wheel. to the wagon wheel, yeah. uh, and and it was like 
That was so good to hear yeah, yeah. because was all of that a memory that really didn't happen yeah, because it was exactly. so long ago? But here he's like, the wagon wheel. I thought, oh, my God. And that character, yes, would have been at the wagon yeah, wheel. Yeah. That, yeah, exactly. He yeah. helps define sort of another layer that of style. what was going yes, on yeah, at absolutely. the time. Yeah, absolutely. definitely. And I remember they all stayed in the Knickerbocker Hotel. I mean, there was just it was just... Unbelievable, and, and to be, you know, to sit on the outside watching that. Right. And we weren't really on the outside. We got in a little bit, mm. but something always. They were very, they were very kind, actually, Decent. by by just not really pushing us into yeah. anything or. Whatever, yeah. You want to believe that they did that because they liked us? I don't know why they did it. Yeah, I don't know either, but... Um, I, they talked about us like we were specimens or like... Yeah, I what, think they did. Vinny, don't go to jail. That's all I remember. <laughs> don't you ever go to jail because like. if they get you in jail... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> I remember one time there was a fight. Two sailors came up to me in the street and they, in front of the, uh, the diner there. And all the boys are sitting inside mm-hmm. doing whatever they were doing. And I was standing outside, and they were asking directions. And I was telling them, yeah, you go down here. And as I'm talking to them, they start, you know, they were making fun. I said, all right, you guys aren't interested. And they started this fight with me. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, and, and they were going to beat me up. So now I get into the fight with these two guys. And I'm doing pretty good, you know. <laughs> and all of my friends are sitting in there watching. You're kidding. Nobody came outside. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> And then I remember after, because I did okay, hmm. they all came out, and it was uh, there was a great scene in The Goodfellas where the kid uh, didn't squeal, and they were waiting for him out of the courthouse, and they were, oh, Vinny, you did great, I thought you were gay, you know, that's what they all said. That's um, very funny. Yeah. I, I, um, I think for that time, which really was just a, like a just an inch of time in our life, a slither. Um, There were so many provocative moments. And I think, you know, coming out the other end, um, all of those situations, and there were so many. And I I was so naive through most of it that I I don't think, if I think if I understood some of the nuances, it would have, like, yeah. But, um, But I think about... Um, the teenage years in every person's life and how when you think that your mother and your father don't know what they're doing and you know everything. I've had a few of those. That's the beginning. (laughs) That's the beginning of this period of time that is this very strange sort of lifetime experience that sets you up for how you're going to deal with life and it's all intuitive and I don't know how much of it is what your parents do or how they treat you or what you think about Um, I was a goody two-shoes I was I did everything right. I was the top of my class. I worked hard. I got good grades. I was I was always good. And here I was in this environment that was everything but what a goody two-shoes should do. So how I somehow meandered through it 
And my mother, and, and she was no dummy, my mother really had no idea of how close to very dangerous situations oh, I came. Yeah. No uh, every time I was there. She would change it yeah, to the radiator. But she, but she had no clue. And in the end, um, when I got grounded again, I realized that that experience was something I could never tell her. And, and that would start this wedge of things I couldn't tell my mother. And, and so did you, like, what, what do you think, how did you get through that and still sort of come out? I, I of, would never tell my mother anything. I mean, my mother was dangerous if I told her the things <laughs> that I was doing. Um, and I was not a goody two shoes. I, I was a bad kid when I when I was growing up in the Bronx. I got arrested. I was stealing cars. I was I never went to school. I mean I was got tattooed. I was thirteen years old. I mean I was I was not an, a good kid. But I remember the day I got caught, and I remember the night the police came to my house. Oops. And I remember that night my mother came out of the bedroom and my grandmother was there, and how scared I was. And that was, that was for yeah. me, uh, I think, a turning point. Yeah. Although you're always around no, but you know that. But I knew yeah. right then and there, right then and there, that when yeah. I was never going to uh, do anything like that ever again. Yeah. And, and yeah. once you have that identity, you know, I work with high school kids all the time, and you can either have the identity of this achiever who's always trying to get good grades, or the kid that's always in trouble that's always having bad grades, that's always cre creating a problem. And what happens is you start to adapt that personality and make it true. You make yeah, that, yeah. you create a truth out of it. And I see that with kids so much. And I always say, break, break this truth. You can, you can change your identity now. It will be so much harder after high school. Yeah, it becomes a habit. After high school, you're, it, you're done. So you really uh, my fixation with um, high school students is that there's a chance, there's a chance before they graduate, just like that chance because I was in high school while we were doing this, there's a chance you can help a kid re-identify who they're going to be for life, no matter what the situation yeah. is. Oh, God, what a gift to give a kid that is. Oh. And, and think about all the parents today who may be more indulgent than your mother and my mother, who oh, believe are. that if you are friends with your kid, they'll tell you everything. And so I'm wondering, is that relationship better than what our parents did for our parents basically said this is this is the law and the law wins this is it there's no compromise you don't like it leave get well, out of the house if you don't like it parents now um have a, a different relationship but i can't believe teenagers still don't skirt because you're young you have no life experience and now, when you're away from your parents, you're with a group of people who can affect the whole rest of your life by what happens in those couple of years 
that was my biggest fear with my own kids. Um, wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Get into an argument, push your friend, he hits his right. head on the curb. Right. Then you're in prison. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's the idea to be a, look, that, somebody once said to me, if discipline is about you, it's not good discipline. Right. If it's about behavior, then it's a good discipline. Mm -hmm. And there is no bad discipline, as long as it's not about you. You don't want to hurt your children. You don't want to, but to be their friend, <clears throat> you don't want to be their friend. Yeah. They don't want you to be their yeah. friend. No, they, they want you to be yeah. their fathers and mothers. Right. Yeah. So I, I think this tradition of teenagers venturing into this world <clears throat> that parents don't really want to believe is happening they, they, I think my mother, as smart as she was, there was a part of her that wanted to believe that you were the worst case scenario yeah. and that there was nothing else. And I think parents today feel the same, that they don't want to believe the worst case, but in fact, it's inevitable that an, a child who is just tied to their parents and now is experiencing a world that is very unprotected is definitely going to be venturing into some unknown territory. And the only hope is that they come out the other end unscathed. I can remember my son Luke telling me some of the things that were going on in his private school that I was stunned. I could never believe that 11-year-old kids. But what did you do? What could you do about well, it? Well, there's nothing you can do. But try to be, be to be an example for him. You can't look, kids. Uh, I think a lot of parents don't know what to do. You know, when they had, when you started to see kids' faces on on milk cartons, every parent was taking their kid to school. But did you? Did your mother take you to school when you were twelve? <laughs> no. no. You got a boot in the ass and said, Yo, yeah. get get off to school and you're going to yeah. be late." But but. I, I took my kids to school because that whole thing that, that they pushed in your face when Eton Pates was right. kidnapped on his way to school, you, you become so frightened right. of anything happens to your kids, what happens. But I told Luke, my disciplining you is not about you. Mm. My disciplining in you is more to protect me because what happens to me if something happens yeah. to you? Yeah. I'm done. I'm dead. Yeah. Wipe it down. I can. It, yeah. It's over. So he really understood that, and mm. I think he respected. It. I know he, you know, he did, it. and Christian too. All of my, all of my kids, they did things that. It's good that you don't know. No, it's better that you don't. Yeah, know. and so talking about coming out the other end. So then, if we fast forward a little bit into the seventies, I'm, 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 I remember taking TM, and you're up in India meditating and oming standing and on doing his standing on your head <laughs> and so here we are in one world and now we've transported into something that was actually more our personalities yeah, right sure. um and so the 70s were really an attempt at peace and love and and all of that and we actually floated through that nicely yeah, i mean it, it was it was so it was such a relief to feel connected again until I remember being in the store and this guy coming in and everybody thought, again, another drug time, but a different kind of, it was a mellower kind of thing. And I remember everybody, the way I looked, 
uh, and the way I dressed. And I, I think I shaved my eyebrows at that point. So I looked like I was on something. Um, and so I didn't even deny it if people thought I was stoned. I didn't say, no, no, no. I'm like, hmm. So this guy came into the store and he said, would you like some candy from Pakistan? And I said, oh, my God, yeah, of course. How cool is that? Candy from Pakistan. I'm thinking it's candy. And he, he has this big piece of tinfoil. It's like a block covered with tinfoil. And he's unpeeling the tinfoil, and there's all this brown, gunky stuff. And I said, that doesn't look like candy. <laughs> That's chocolate? And he looked at me, and I, he immediately knew, I'm going to put this away. This, this girl's so lost. And I remember floating through that period of time, like you, where you just didn't talk about the fact that you weren't stoned because everybody else was stoned. And they all thought you were stoned anyway. Absolutely. And because it was better if you were too, they would feel more Well, remember, I was, in the, I was in the center of that world. Yes, you were. I was were. working in the clubs. Yes, you were. And, um, and I can remember the trips... Not with me, but I remember this march back and forth to the men's Yeah. I think, what the hell? What's going on in there? <laughs> <laughs> you open, you stick your head in, and all you hear is, mm. no, I, I uh, no. And, and we would touch base. Yeah, like, in and out, right? Like, you're the other, you're the other person that isn't Kenny Stone. <laughs> I don't think I knew anybody else. I really, no, I, I think about, I didn't know anybody else that wasn't getting stoned. Don't. And it was really, it was a little scary, but as long as I didn't talk about it, I, nobody would yeah. question me. She's hip. I'm hip. Yeah, yeah. Like we, looked, we looked like we fit in, but we were so, really so different. But there was a very peaceful yeah. sort of calming time. Um, and it was so baby boomer it was so expressive and typical of what our generation is about and coming from being bound up in garter belts and girdles and all of that paraphernalia too i don't think i wore a bra or underpants through the entire 70s i was like so free i was not gonna do that i hated that whole the cone bras and the oh my god the message yeah. Well, let's see. I can go through the, li- the list of clubs that I was working in back in those days. My goodness. And, uh, I mean, Salvation was, to me, the, the epitome of what you're talking mm. about here, this sort of, like, peace, love, and rock and roll. Mm. And uh, that was right on Sheridan Square. And what, what kind of music was being played? Well, it was The Doors. It was, uh, it, it was um, the Buffalo Springfield. Mm-hmm. I remember Terry Noel was the DJ there. And um, he was the DJ in Arthur mm-hmm. when Arthur was on, mm-hmm. I guess it was on, where the hippopotamus mm-hmm. ended up. And um, All I can remember uh, about that was Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow being at the bar and seeing Paul Newman with yeah. his, like, these incredible blue eyes. And he was so little. He yeah, was, he was like short, a little yeah, bit, very small. just a little taller than I am and thinking... Oh my God! The you know the reality of seeing these people um, in person really puts everything in perspective. Yeah, yeah, they're not on the big screen. Yeah, yeah, it's bigger than life is not. But those clubs were also 
Um, so much a comment about the new freedoms we were having. It's not, you know, clubs are almost tired now, and yeah. they don't. They're they're not um, connecting people in the same way. Of course, everything has to compete with your mobile device, yeah, yeah. but. Um, there was such a great energy in connecting with people and and interacting in a way that none no generation before had done. It was quite different and very free. And oh. then obviously culminating in Studio 54, where it was sort of like leading up to this total abandoned freedom um, that then, you know, set everything else in motion for what was going to come after that but true true baby boomer influence through that period well i remember salvation bradley the guy who uh, mm. i went to work for there uh, and mike washi was on the door who just passed away and um i remember brad had no interest in making money he just wanted every he just wanted the love yeah that was all he wanted yeah. to do and he expressed it and everyone who came in there uh, it didn't matter who they were. Mm. They were they experienced exactly. Right. What, but it was the drugs it was, that yeah. destroyed that, yeah. that sensibility. And, and you know what was really popular then to comedy clubs? Yeah. We used to, I remember we'd work, and then everybody after work, we would go to all the comedy clubs. The improv? And all of, yeah, the improv and the comedy club. And uh, there were so many good ones. And all of these great comedians yeah. were Richie just, Pryor. yeah, they were all getting there. They're starting off and experimenting. And we did so much laughing in the yeah. 70s, too. I think probably the best note to end this on is that the 70s, for me, are a memory of a lot of laughter, a lot of... Um, positive, optimistic feeling mm -hmm. of joy and happiness and love and really, yeah. but spiritually believing it and yeah. feeling good yeah. about it. And we've come to a point now where we're not laughing anymore. We're not positive. We're very tightly wound. Yeah. And I think now more than ever... We need some brilliant comedians. And I, I think, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is one of these guys who transcends time. I heard some of his comedy bits on Netflix that he did in the 70s. They repeated, mm -hmm. they put together, he did all of his um, bits from the 70s in one Netflix show. And it was timeless humor that was still so funny and people like that genius there there's a real genius there you oh, quoted sure. right just his show and and so there are people like him that have a kindness to them and a humor that's so brilliant and intelligent and you have to be very smart to mm -hmm. do that so i'm Ending this with the plea for wherever there are comedians who are going to make us laugh and be brilliant. We miss, you. we miss you. We need you. And it would be a beautiful thing. And Vinny, thank you so oh, much. I'm so happy oh. you agreed to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. My I love pleasure. This. And then we'll do it again tomorrow. Okay. Okay. <laughs>